Welcome to Thursday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live on Giants.com. I'm Paul Dottino, along with Super Bowl 42 champion punter Jeff Fiegels. And today we'll continue our opponent previews, and we'll catch up on some of your Twitter comments at hashtag GiantsChat. And you could hit us up directly if you'd like. He is at Jay Fiegels, and I am at GiantsWFAN. Now it's time for today's opponent preview. And on December the 6th, the Giants will visit Seattle in week number 13 of the NFL season. And to join us for an early look at the Seahawks is legendary host for Sports Radio 950 KJR, Dave Softy Mailer. Dave, so good of you to, to take the time today. Hope everything is well out by you. Yeah, Paul, Jeff, what's happening, guys? How are you? Wonderful. Well, if you told me that week 13 would be played, I would I would sign up for that right now, even if it was the first week of the year. I mean, this is just crazy, you know, as you guys know. And I, I just, you know, I've got nervous energy about all this stuff, about what's going to happen to college football, what's going to happen to the NFL, you know, what's going to happen to the NBA when this tournament starts, you know, is baseball going to happen? So it's kind of a, I'll believe it when I see it type thing, you know? Well, Dave, let's dig into the Seahawks, and I guess the first question is kind of a non-Seahawk question in a way, because Jadavian Clowney is still out there as an unrestricted free agent. Uh, The talk continues to be that he may go back to Seattle, at least that's what the people around the country are saying. What are they saying by you? Well, he just doesn't have any options, you know, as far as uh, what he thought he would have. I mean, it's a guy that, you know, after he was traded from the Texans to the Seahawks last year, you know, thought he would sign a one-year deal or, excuse me, play out his contract for one more year in Seattle. The Seahawks agreed to not franchise him when the year was over, and that would allow Jadeveon to go out and finally cash in on the contract he was looking for, and then the pandemic hits, and he can't go out and visit with teams. He can't go out and get physicals on that groin injury he had a year ago. His production drops last year because he had you know, he's playing with a groin injury. I mean, you saw in that San Francisco game on Monday Night Football. I thought last year how disruptive this guy can be. The problem is he just wasn't healthy, you know, for the for the uh, you know the strong majority of the second half of the year. So, you know, I I actually think that if he had signed a deal, if he was in year one of a four year deal, I think he would have shut her down a year ago. But this is a guy who was playing for free agency, and then again the pandemic hits and he can't make those trips and can't go visit with teams and nobody's really in the mood to spend money. You know, Bucky Brooks was on our show a couple days ago and, and just said the market for Clowney is, is gone. It's just no longer there. I mean, you got you got the Raiders, you got the Browns, you got the Seahawks, you got the Titans that have apparently made offers, um, but, you know, th- there's really nothing out there that's intrigued him so far. So what I think he does, he probably just waits and waits and waits and waits, you know, sees what happens with the pandemic and sees what happens with the preseason and then shows up to somebody's training camp at the last second, just like he did a year ago when he came from the Texans to the Seahawks. So, you know, it's a guy that's probably going to have to sign another one-year prove-it deal for the second year in a row. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 and it's funny, you, you mentioned that word, it's dried up, money's dried up. Well, yeah. right now, it, it just seems that there's so un, uh, so much unknown about everything that I think there's so much more to, to think about rather than signing a guy like that when you don't even know if you're really going to play football at this point. So I think it's going to be one of those situations for him where he's just sitting around waiting for something to happen, a, a team that needs him desperately, a guy gets hurt, um, or they just really, you know, and yep. they're capped. It, it's just a lot of, lot of unknown stuff. But, you know, talk about my question. I want to move to the offense real quickly, Dave, if you don't mind. Um, you know, Russell Wilson, <laughs> he's never really received that proper protection from his offensive line for years. Um, when we were doing the draft and covering 
some of the things. I thought that they would probably go somewhere and help them, uh, help Russell Wilson with the offensive line, but they really didn't. They just brought in some free agents. Talk to me a little bit about that offensive line this year and what the Giants will be going up against. Well, you know, uh, if you go back to 2013 when the Seahawks won the Super Bowl in New Jersey, uh, in your backyard, they actually had the highest paid offensive line in the NFL. And that's changed dramatically in the past seven years, mostly because they haven't drafted a lot of offensive linemen that are worth re-signing. And, and that's their own fault, right? I mean, they have not drafted well at all on the offensive line. The one guy that they've drafted that turned out to be a decent player in the last six or seven years was, was Justin Britt. And he's obviously no longer with the football team, and he got let go uh, because of the injury a year ago, and his his cap number for 2020. So, you know, again, I mean, when you when you draft offensive linemen that are worth resigning, great. But if, if you're so terrible on draft day when it comes to drafting offensive linemen that you can't even justify signing your own guys, that's why you end up with the lowest paid offensive line or one of the lowest paid offensive lines in the NFL. So, I mean, look, you're you're talking about you know C level guys, you know, BJ Finney. Uh, the unrestricted free agent from Pittsburgh uh, can play guard and center. He's going to replace Justin Britt for now. At center, Brandon Shell, who you guys know from the Jets, came over. Cedric Agbui from the Jaguars came over. Uh, you know, Mike Upati's on his last legs. He came over last year. Yeah, that's the kind of guy that you're talking about. Yeah, Dwayne Brown's good at left tackle, but Dwayne Brown's 35 years old. For God's sakes. I mean, at some point, they're going to have to replace him. Ethan Posick is now going into year four, and nobody knows what his best position is. You know, Phil Haynes, the rookie right guard from West Virginia, probably starts for these guys when it's all said and done. But the battle at right tackle, the battle at left guard, uh, can Dwayne Brown continue to hold up in his mid-30s like he did in his late 20s remains to be seen. So, to me, I think the entire line of scrimmage for the Seahawks is the biggest question mark on this football team. Actually, I think most positions outside side of the offensive and defensive lines are pretty solid. But if you're gonna if you're gonna go cheap or if you're gonna be bad at one or two positions, Jeff and, and uh, guys, you know, Paul, as you know, the last place you want that to happen at is the line of scrimmage, and that's where the Hawks are weak right now, I think. Well and I think sure. that's a really big deal when you consider that Russell Wilson has started every game of his career, but he's now on the yeah. other side of thirty. And I, I don't at all besmirch his production. He's been phenomenal. He's been incredibly consistent. He's also right. been sacked an average of over 40 times a year, Softy. At some point, that's going to take its toll. Of course. And it's amazing that we're sitting here talking about going into, what, year eight, year nine now, whatever it is. I lose track for Russell Wilson. And he's consistently the most sacked quarterback or, you know, among the most sacked quarterbacks in the NFL. And that's not just because the guy likes to take off and leave the pocket, all right? He's harassed constantly, he's constantly under pressure, constantly under siege, and that's an issue, and the fact that he has not missed a snap due to injury so far in his career, he's started 16 games a year every year since 2012, is unbelievable, but as you said, Paul, at some point you're playing with fire, and that's going to stop, so they, they've got to start to find a way to get him the protection he needs, because the older he gets, the less he's going to run, and the more he's going to be living in the pocket as a 
pocket passer because the legs aren't there, which means the more you're exposing him to guys taking shots at his knees. So, so they've got to start getting some things done on the offensive line. It's why we talked about yesterday on the radio show, you know, Chris Carson's been a good running back, but he's going to be a free agent at the end of this year. Some people want him re-signed for big money. I would say the heck with that. Go out and get yourself, you know, a, a, a you know, rookie or a free agent running back like you did with Carlos Hyde or maybe a guy like a Devonta Freeman and then spend that money on the offensive line. I'm not, in the, I'm not interested in spending big money on running backs with my offensive line in the state it's in right now. One thing that uh, Russell Wilson does have, he's got a, a good tight end. Seems that mm-hmm. the Seahawks always go and try to recycle some of those older tight ends for some reason. Maybe I, I think it's probably more, more so in the red zone that, uh, yeah. that I think that Greg Olson will help him. But, well, I was at the game last year, the Seahawks-Philadelphia playoff game, um, and I was watching D.K. Metcalf. And oh. What a season he had. I mean, yeah. just the, the back end of the season, I think it's, you know, a little bit of a, a look coming out learning learning the National Football League, but, but he stole the show that day. And what a game and what a season he had. What a great player. No, he's a stud. He really is. And, you know, it's funny. You go back and uh, if you guys have some time, which I know everybody has extra time on their hands these days, so what am I talking about? Uh, go go back and compare DK Metcalf's numbers a year ago to what Julio Jones did his rookie year in Atlanta. And the numbers are insanely similar. It's actually scary how similar they are between Julio Jones' rookie year and what DK Metcalf did last year. Now, Julio missed a couple of games that season, so it's not totally fair, but that's the kind of player that we are hoping DK Metcalf turns out to be. His catch percentage was down a little bit last year, mostly because of the types of routes he runs. You know, he's the kind of guy that can run the you know, fly pattern, the post route, the go route, things like that. We're talking low percentage throws, obviously. So I think for DK Metcalf, the next uh, step in his, ev- his evolution is for the Seahawks to get him to have a more versatile route tree. And I think he can do it. I, I don't think this guy is just a I don't think he's just a guy that's going to fly downfield. I think DK Metcalf has a much bigger route tree than what you saw a year ago. I think you'll see it this year. Let me go to that running game because you mentioned Carson a little while ago. And look, obviously he was a thousand yard runner last year, but, but softly, I've got to ask you about Rashad Penny. When he was a first round pick a couple of years ago, there were a lot of people who had him projected to be a true superstar. It hasn't happened at all, mostly because the guy's been banged up, all right? He's missed uh, eight games in two years. He missed two games in 2018 with a thumb, and then he missed the last six games in 2019. So he's been injury-prone the first couple years in the NFL, and that's a problem for running backs, as you know. Same problem for the most part with Chris Carson. Chris Carson, when he's healthy, has been phenomenal. Uh, Rashad Penny, when he's healthy, has been phenomenal. That's a guy last year in uh, in uh, in Penny, Paul, he averaged almost six yards a carry, five point seven yards a carry, but missed six games again because of the injury. And I think this year is going to be huge for him and for Chris Carson. If Penny blows up and can be healthy the entire year or a strong majority of it, I think the Seahawks would have no problem saying goodbye to Chris Carson and making Rashad Penny their featured running back in 2021 because the guy's a bruiser. He's a small guy, but he also runs tough and he runs physical. So he's kind of exactly what they've had here you know, since Marshawn Lynch. Marshawn Lynch shows up in 2010 and brings this tone, brings this identity to the Seahawks offense. And ever since Beast Mode came through here, they've been looking for that kind of guy, that kind of guy that can smash through people and not run around people. So Carson's that guy. Rashad Penny is that guy. Difference between Penny and Carson. Penny's got three years left on his deal, and Carson has one. So (laughs) it's a big year for that room, man. Huge year for that room, no doubt about it. Well, 
we can go over to the defensive side, you know, rather than spend that first round choice on a defensive lineman, because we both, we just talked about the trenches, both offensively and defensively. Um, you know, the Seahawks, they go out and they get a linebacker in right. the first round in Jordan Brooks, uh, you know, with our draft coverage and what we, we know this guy from Texas Tech makes a lot of tackles. How is he going to mesh in there uh, defensively with Bobby Wagner? I mean, what a great guy to be next to, for sure, as a rookie. Yeah, and the thing is, is that Wagner and K.J. Wright are both getting up there in age, guys, Jeff, as you know. So at some point, they're going to have to replace, you know, one, if not both of those players. You know, nobody wants to think about Bobby Wagner not being here, but Father Time is catching up to him for sure. You know, he had a you know, a decent year last year, but it, it, it was not the kind of year that I think a lot of us have come to expect out of Bobby Wagner. So I have no problem with the Jordan Brooks selection. You know, I know a lot of people were looking for a pass rusher, uh, you know, maybe a pure edge rusher maybe an offensive line, but I think this guy can actually be that type of player. Uh, you go back to last year at Texas Tech, his senior year, and don't you know, don't forget that the Seahawks actually saw this guy at the Combine, loved him so much that they didn't even call him because they didn't want the word getting out that they were interested in Jordan Brooks. They wanted the Jordan Brooks connection to, to just go away uh, so nobody would have any idea the Hawks were even high on him. But Chase Young had 21 tackles for loss a year ago at Ohio State, and he was the number one pick in the draft. This guy had 20 at Texas Tech, playing a much different position at linebacker versus defensive end. He can line up all over the place. He can line up in the A-gap. He can line up as an edge rusher. He can drop back and pass coverage. He's fast as heck. He can get in the backfield in a flash. So, for all those Seahawks fans, and I get it, man, the Seahawks sack production last year was terrible. They were second to last in the NFL in sacks. They were tied with Detroit, and only the, the Dolphins had fewer sacks than the Seahawks did. And look, no disrespect to the Lions or Dolphins, but if you're in a category with the Lions or Dolphins, you're not doing you know, good. That's a terrible thing to be associated with. So they got to get that production up. And I think Jordan Brooks can bring some of that to the table. I think people are kind of missing the boat on this guy, to be honest with you. Well, Softy, it's interesting to me because you talk about Seattle with only those 28 sacks last year. The Giants are talking about how much they need to add to their sack production, but they did not go out and grab a big sack specialist either so they're saying right. it's going to be schematic it's going to be sacks by committee it's going to be having the strength in the back seven and having the secondary do a great job kind of like what the patriots have done that's you know they say it's a copycat league that's one of the things that belichick does when they don't have a lot of sacks he uses schemes and he uses the secondary to overcome it is that what they want to do out there with pete carroll and the seahawks well, they've been blitzing from their secondary a little bit more in the last couple of years ever since Ken Norton came back as defensive coordinator. So I think that there definitely is something to that, that when you don't have the big daddies on the edge and they don't have those guys right now. I mean, look, their, their pure edge rushers right now are L.J. Collier, Benson Mayoa, and Bruce Irvin. All right, I mean, those names don't exactly strike fear into an offensive coordinator's heart, okay? Let's let's be honest. And L.J. Collier is more of a run-stuffing defensive end than he is a pass-rushing defensive end anyway. So when it comes to actually, you know, guys that you would expect to be, you know, uh, pass-rush specialists, it really is Bruce Servant and Benson Mayoa, and that's it, at defensive end. So that's why I think the Jordan Brooks selection could be potentially so big, and you're right, with guys like McDougald and Shaq Griffin, Quandry Diggs, uh, they've got some pretty good blitzing defensive backs on this football team. I think you'll see more of that even so in 2020, but that really is the key, man. Tell me about the pass rush production. Tell me about how much pressure 
pressure the Seahawks get on the quarterback, and I'll tell you how far they go in the playoffs. And I think a lot of this is also coaching, to be honest with you. We just got done talking about how Ken Norton Jr. likes to blitz a lot more from the secondary, but there's also been some issues. You know, go back to last year, the last play of the game, the last offensive play of the game for Green Bay against the Packers in the postseason uh, on third down, which was the biggest defensive snap of the year, obviously, at that point. They got Clowney on the field, and they're dropping him back in pass coverage, which made no sense to me whatsoever. So things like that, you kind of you know, are scratching your head asking what the hell this coaching staff is doing, but they don't have the personnel, Paul, when it's all said and done this year. They're going to have to get creative with scheme for sure. Well, you know, the Seahawks, you got a pretty – what might be the most competitive division, you know, this year uh, in football. And so, Dave, what do you see the Seahawks doing this season in the division? I've got them probably behind the 49ers, yeah. um, ahead of the Cardinals, who I think are actually going to surprise some people this year. Um, I don't know about – I don't know where the Rams are. I have no idea what they're going to do. What's your take on, as a whole, the Seahawks team this year? Obviously, you have Russell Wilson. He's the, the key to that team staying healthy, taking you to the promised land if he can get some protection. And, you know, yeah. I think coaching goes a long way with Pete Carroll because he's, he's amazing. The guy just knows how to coach and, and gets his players in ready to play. Well, listen, the difference is, and it's just like the Giants, man, you know, once you've had a taste, once you've had a piece of the pie, uh, once you had a bite of the apple, nothing less than a Super Bowl championship or at least playing in a Super Bowl is going to be good enough. So, yeah, you know, Pete Carroll's been great. Uh, they, they've been very consistent, obviously. They made the playoffs eight of ten years. Uh, Russell Wilson kind of feels like when he wakes up in the morning, he's good for nine, ten wins automatically every single season, but that's not good enough around here anymore, you know. Now fans want conference championships. They want Super Bowls. And I don't blame them. You know, look, you got one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL, maybe the second or third best quarterback in the NFL right now behind Patrick Mahomes. And to only win one title with Russell Wilson, uh, I think people would look at that as, as a bit of a letdown, right? I mean, Aaron Rodgers has won one. Drew Brees has won one. And I think so far people look at that as a bit of, a, you know, kind of a disappointment in Green Bay and New Orleans. So they've got to get back to the mountain. And I just think, you know, look, for these guys in the division, uh, I, I see, Jeff, the same thing happening this year that happened a year ago. I see the Hawks and Niners fighting out for the NFC West Championship, and if you remember last year, Week 17, Jacob Hollister, six inches away from the end zone, that's how close they were to winning the NFC West a year ago, right? So I think it'll be that kind of season where you see these two teams fighting it out. I'm with you entirely. I think the Rams are, t- are just going backwards. The amount of money they paid Jared Goff is going to come back to bite them in the butt. I, I'm not even sure yep. the Rams finished 500 this year, to be honest with you. I think the Cardinals may overtake them. Now, how far do the yeah. Cardinals go? They were a 5-11 and football team a year ago. Could they make the jump and be 8-8 eight and eight or 9-7? and seven? Certainly. Is that going to be enough to win the NFC West? No. This is a two-team race as of right now. You know, Softy, so many people forget about special teams, but as Jeff and I often tell them, if you go yeah. in every weekend knowing that you can at least win the special teams battle, that's one-third of the game. Yeah, they've been good. You know, Michael Dixon, though, the punter, and Jeff knows a thing or two about that. He had kind of a sophomore slump last year, I thought. You know, I, I, I didn't know that punters were allowed to have sophomore slumps. All that punters were supposed to be great and then just great for the rest of their career. So, Michael Dixon, uh, Jeff, you've seen this guy kick. He was a freaking magician with the football. 
football in 2018, and then something happened in 2019 where he just wasn't able to place the football as accurately as he was in 2019 or 2018. So curious to see what kind of bounce back year he has this season. Jason Myers, our kicker, who you guys know obviously from his days out in New York, was was kind of really up and down a year ago. Uh, you know, they've had a problem replacing Stephen Hauschka ever since they let him walk to the Bills about three years ago. They brought in all kinds of different, you know, Blair Walsh, Sebastian Janikowski, Jason Myers, and fans have hated every single one of them that they've brought in. Every single kicker that has come here has been crushed by the fan base. So they got to figure that out a little bit. And then their return game, you know, look, I mean, they've been tinkering with Lockett. They've been tinkering with Rashad Penny on punts and kickoff returns and things like that. But, you know, overall, their special teams game has been has been good, hasn't been great. But you know what? With the new rules now in the NFL, I'm not sure if anybody has a great special teams return game anymore. No, you're right. I think, you know, eventually I think the kickoff return will be the first to go. They yeah. better not ever take the punt away. That's for sure, Dave. <laughs> they don't <have> to that. <laughs> you know, although they are, they are talking about, you know, like in the, in the, in the uh, XFL, you weren't allowed to kick the ball out of bounds. It was a penalty. You know, forget that. We're not doing yeah. that. You've got to no, and you know what? And, and you know, look, Jeff, and I'm, I'm totally with you. I, I, I get the fact that the NFL is concerned about safety and, and blah, 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 and things like that. And, and I don't want to just dismiss that, you know, because it is an issue, especially for the future of the sport. There's a lot of moms and dads out there that don't let their kids play football because they're concerned about their kids getting hurt. But technology is advancing when it comes to safety, when it comes to helmets and pads and things like that. I mean, heck, some of these helmets these guys are wearing now and not just college football in the NFL. We're talking, you know, 2500 bucks a pop for these things, for God's sake. So they've gone out of their way. These companies have done a great job to keep players safe, and I miss it. You know, I miss some of the violent collisions on kickoffs. I miss watching guys take kickoffs to the house. I miss the idea of the onside kick. You guys remember the Packers-Seahawk game in 2014, the NFC Championship game, that great comeback versus Green Bay. That was only possible because Chris Matthews and Steven Hauschka teamed up on that incredible onside kick that gave the Seahawks the ball back. Today, that doesn't happen because the idea of even executing an onside kick seems to be ridiculous. So it definitely is not the NFL that we grew up with. There's no question about that, and all of us just have to get used to it because it's not going to change. That's Dave Softy Mailer of Sports Radio 950 KJR in Seattle. Again, the Giants will visit the Seahawks on December 6th. Now, the Seahawks, of course, near and dear, as we talked about, to your heart, Mr. Fiegels. Mm-hmm. Five seasons in Seattle from 1998 through 2002. You had guys like Moon and Kitna and Hasselback as your quarterback, which did mean at times you had a lot of punting to do. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I need to ask you something. Uh, again, one of those things we've never talked about. You left Seattle at age 36 to join the Giants as a free agent and wound up playing seven more seasons. Mm-hmm. So when you left the Seahawks... How long did you think you would play? Because I'd have a hard time imagining you thought you'd be with the Giants that long. Well, I thought I thought I would play for probably three more years. I wanted to make it till I was forty, so that was kind of my goal. Um, and at the time, I can't remember how long of a contract I signed with the Giants. Of course, I redid my contract almost every year. Um, we just re- we would just redo it, and um, yeah. So I think I think at the time, from what I remember, maybe three more years till I was thirty nine, forty. But ended up playing, you know, seven here. So it worked. 
could, Super Bowl. Could could you tell the fans briefly in a, in a th- short thumbnail capsule what enticed you to come to the Giants after being in Seattle? You certainly had a successful time there. Well, I Jim Fossil was uh, a guy that was with the with the Cardinals when I was with the Cardinals. He was the offensive coordinator, so I had a good relationship with him. Um, and then I just, you know, I, I, I've always heard of the franchise. I always heard how great it was to play there. And to be honest with you, um, you know, the Seahawks didn't do me really any, uh, didn't do themselves any favors by, you know, I went back to them with first right of refusal with the offer that I got from the Giants, and they said no. And then, of course, after I told them I'm going to the Giants, they changed their mind. So they, they were trying to play hardball with me, but I called them on the carpet. So I left. Um, and we just thought it was a great opportunity at, at, at that juncture of my career and where the kids were. Of course, my kids were, they've been so adaptable to moving around. So that was an easy thing for them to come out here. And uh, we just picked up right where uh, we left off being in Seattle. We found a home here and really uh, settled in and absolutely the kids loved it. So we wanted an opportunity just to be close to New York City and come and experience that. You know, we all we grew up on the West Coast, so we thought it would be fun. You know what's funny? You wound up coming to the Giants, and they wound up with Tom Ruin, who had a cup of coffee with the Giants in 2002. That's right. Yeah, I remember Tom Ruin. He was a. He also played for Denver. Yes, um, which long is time. Kind of ironic because Mike Haran, who was the, with the Giants before me, years mm-hmm. before me, was with Denver too. With yes. Dan Reeves. So. There's this thing about punters and kickers. You guys seem to stay like in a closed circle. Well, you do. Here's the thing. If you're good at it, then you have a job for a while, as long as you stay healthy and you can still perform, right? Um, and a lot of the coaches love experience. They like veteran kickers and punters, and they follow them around. Like if a coach leaves and they go to another team and that guy isn't really what they want, they'll try to try to reach out and find the guy that they know well, and they usually bring him in. I mean, classic example, Mike Aran. When, uh, when he came from Denver with Dan Reeves, he came out here to the Giants. Very true. Now, I need to ask you one question about your time in Seattle, because, uh, you know, we're all very big on ProFootballReference.com. It's a great site and has really revolutionized the way that people can get their football stats. In the 2000 season, you were 34 years old with the Seahawks, punted 74 times for an average of 40 yards per kick. Mm -hmm. According to ProFootballReference, your longest punt that season was zero. How'd you do that? <laughs> well, it goes to show you how those uh, pro football reference websites and stuff aren't exactly accurate as you think they are, aren't you? <laughs> you know, it's so funny looking at your career, and my goodness, it's a long one. Uh, all your numbers are there, and everything makes sense, except there's this one goose egg for your longest punt of the 2000 season. You may yeah. want to take a look at that one day for <laughs> an even funny. bigger laugh. Yeah, that is funny. I, I, I couldn't tell you what my longest punt was that season. Uh, usually, usually they're in 60s, you know, 60, 70 yards, somewhere in there. I never, my longest punt was 77 yards in my career was against Dallas. I remember that. Um, Do you know what year? Because um, I, I can tell with, you. I was with the Eagles. Yes, yes, yes. I believe it might have been, was it 91? It 90? is. Yeah, yeah, there you it go. It is. So. And yeah, did you know, by the way, you had the longest punt of the NFL season as a rookie with New England in mm-hmm. 1988, you hit a 74-yarder. Wow. Well, I wish I had more of those in my career. <laughs> <laughs> the great one about, and I, real quickly, I'll tell you the story of the 77-yarder. We were in the old Dallas Stadium, which you remember the open roof. Texas Stadium. Yep. And um, 
you know, that shadow. See, I thought you were going to say the Cotton Bowl for just a second, but you're not that old, are you? <laughs> no, I'm not that old. But, the, you know, the shadow that used to be there? The, the sun, sure. Excuse me. And so um, I don't remember who I was kicking to, but I kicked it, and he went up to look for the football, and he lost the ball in the sun. It hit him on his shoulder pad and rolled out at like the five or six yard line. So not only did I get an inside the ten, I got a seventy-seven yard gross and a seventy-seven yard net punt out of it. So sweet. In, in football terms and punting terms, we call that the trifecta. So you get an inside the twenty and you get a net and a gross punt, all really good. So yeah, it was fun. I, I couldn't believe it because I did. It was a decent punt. It's probably a fifty-yard kick, but coming down, you know, he just lost it in that sun and it hit his shoulder pad and. Went right down there to the five-yard line. Wow. Nice. Very, very nice. Well, you know, that's the thing a lot of times, and I know that you were very scientific about how you went about your business, but quite often over the years, especially years ago, not so much now because most kickers are trying to be as scientific as they can be, mm-hmm. there were a lot of times where funky bounces really determined the success of the kick, and it really wasn't necessarily as much to do with the punter. At least that's the way I saw it. Yeah, well, I, th- I think some, it depends on where you play. I mean, the old days of the Meadowlands, um, we had to sometimes rely on the roll, you know, just get the ball on the ground because it was so windy in there that if you got the ball up in the air, the, the wind would just wreak ha- havoc with it. So, you know, you just wanted to sometimes just get the ball on the ground and hopefully it, it does take the good bounce for you and starts rolling. But there are times when, you know, yeah, you hit a nice punt and it hits and comes back 20 yards and you've got a 22-yard punt. I mean, really? just happens <laughs> it just happens no yeah. hey i get it and there's, there's a lot of luck involved because as they say the well, game sure. the game is not perfectly uh, the ball is not perfectly round mm-hmm. yeah and listen <laughs> and, and it, it goes the other way too look at the 77 yard punt i got i mean that's that was a lucky roll too so um you know it's funny because sean lindetta when we were playing when we were uh, when I was with the Eagles, he was with the Giants. When he was with the Eagles and I was with the Giants, you know, he was a he was a stat guy. You know that. Yes. And um, we used to get together before the game and talk, all the punters and kickers do before the game. We talk about anything, this and that. He always used to say, can you believe last week so-and-so, like let's just say uh, Tom Ruin. Can you believe last week Tom Ruin got 16 yards in extra rolls oh, last yeah. year? And he knew, week. too. He knew. Sean knew every single one of those numbers. <laughs> See, I was never that way. I really just, I really could care less. Um, I just wanted to be consistent, and I just wanted to work, and I wanted a job. And as long as I performed, I knew the statistics were good enough that I didn't need to check them. Mm-hmm. And so, and that's what happened. And you know, this, the more you start worrying about that kind of type of stuff, you just get in trouble because there's too much to worry about to begin with. It's enough. The game is stressful enough that rather than have to worry about how many how many roles guys got. I guess that's just because he didn't have he had a lot of time to look at stuff <laughs> on, on on tape, right? I yeah, mean, what sure. else is he doing? Well, I will say this: I'm just glad that there was no internet in those days because you used to have to wait to get the USA Today, mm-hmm. you know, for mm-hmm. the stats after the weekend games were over. Yeah, and the sports section of the USA Today was always sitting there in the middle of the Giants' locker room. They had a small round table with some lounge chairs around it, mm-hmm. and you could always find Sean with his nose buried into mm-hmm. the NFL stats page. Yeah, yeah. Well, I used to look at him too. I mean, I never was like, I never kind of was doing research on him, but on Sunday, on Mondays, my routine was when I went into uh, to the facility before or we had to get there, and I always go to Subway, 
I grab a sub and I grab a USA Today and open that baby up and look at what all the other guys did around the uh, around the league that day. Mm-hmm. So it was fun. It was fun. And now you just got to hit a button. Now you just hit a button, and, and now now they're so sophisticated they can tell you what your war is and all the other stuff that they do, whatever that means. Yeah, and and by the way, did, did you know Pro Pro Football Reference also has like a a an a, a average score, okay, for for football players. Oh, great! No, it's it's an average kind of score that they compute based on some type of crazy mathematical projection, which indicates apparently what your worth was to the team that season. Mm. And, you know, look, I haven't looked at other punters, but you had a bunch of threes in there and a bunch of twos, and you had some ones also. <laughs> now, I'm, I'm just glad that they didn't put a zero in that category for you. Yeah, I mean, so is one, two, and three, is that high in the board, or is that just really, really low? Well, it's it's called the approximate value. It's, it's their attempt to attach a single number to every player uh, since 1960, in a terms of their single number, yes, okay. in terms of their seasonal value, okay. And you know, for your career, you had an aggregate total of 40. I guess that's good. I have no idea. I have no idea. <laughs> no, I don't, don't, know, no, I don't no, even no, know what a three means. Is, it, is ten the best? Is I don't zero know. the worst. Well, I don't, I don't, what's the highest a punter can get? Like a quarterback rating? I have absolutely no idea. But I just bring that up for your amusement, okay? That is, and I am amused, trust me. <laughs> okay, folks, so we've got to hit up a couple of, uh, of news items that we happen to see over the last 24 hours. Again, not taking phone calls this week. We're doing our opponent previews. You've already heard from Dave Softy-Mailer about the Seattle Seahawks. Uh, tomorrow, by the way, we'll be previewing the Baltimore Ravens, as uh, I'll be on with Lance Meadow. But uh, to go to some of the NFL news, uh, NFL.com has an interesting story about uh, the NFL Offensive Rookie of the Year candidates. Joe Burrow, the LSU quarterback, pick number one by the Bengals, is the top candidate, according to Lance Zierlein of NFL.com, and I totally understand that. Sure. And as you look at the list, you know, uh, you see Edwards Hilaire running back for the Chiefs, Swift running back for the Lions, Taylor running back for the Colts, all <laughs> skill position players, right? Judy, wide receiver for the Broncos. You keep going down his list, and every single one of his guys on his potential list, running back, wide receiver, and Burrow and uh, Tua are the only two quarterbacks. So my question to you, Jeff, if Andrew Thomas starts week one, and has a phenomenal season protecting Daniel Jones. Mm-mm. Does he get a bunch of votes and consideration as an NFL Offensive Rookie of the Year? No. <laughs> Why not? Because they just never are. I mean, it's just, um, you know, they just, there's isn't enough of them. Um, reading this article here, it just says, um, Offensive Rookie of the Year award has been won by by NFC rookies for 13 straight seasons. Just three wide receivers have won the award over the last 21 seasons. Interesting. No tight end or offensive lineman has ever won the award. There Correct. It is. There you go. So, no, he won't. But, see, that's why I asked you the question, because can he be the first? And you say I, no. I doubt it. I doubt it because I feel like I feel like all He's the... going to get a lot of publicity now. And if he does well and improves on what has been a sporadic position okay. for the Giants... Okay. Right. Let me, let me let me let me ask you this. So, um, Quentin Nelson, I mean, he's a, a perennial All Pro already. Stud. Did he get it? No, mm-hmm. his rookie year. No, but he went to the Pro Bowl his rookie year. He was All Pro. I well, mean, there so. there was some 
guy named Barkley who came out that year too, you know. Sure. Well, <laughs> there's a guy named Joe Burrow that came out this year. Too. Yeah, this is true. This is true. Well, <laughs> I, you know, but ironically, you mentioned it. You know, these are all the, the, the skill positions. Guys that are gonna these are these are stat getter, getters, right? The guys yes. that are gonna bring you know bring the stats on the board. So, you know, for Thomas to have zero sacks and zero pressures and have an amazing All Pro year, then he's got a chance. But it's not gonna happen. But you know what? I would like it would be great if it did. That means they really got a really good player. All right. Well, that let me, left tackle, by the way. Let me flip it to the other side. How about the NFL's defensive rookie of the year? Do you think that Xavier McKinney would have an opportunity to contend for that award? Because it would seem as though, as a second-round draft choice, and the Giants only having Julian Love really to compete with him, that he may be the opening day starter. Hmm. I don't know. I, I feel like he better have a, he better have some interceptions and just lead the league in tackles at that position, um, because you know really when you think about the defensive player of the year, where are they at? They're the defensive line guys. Could be a linebacker. Um, I don't know. I don't. I don't. I'm not. Gonna, I'm going to say no. I'm going to say no. Well, I mean, obviously the top guys in the draft, Chase Young, the defensive mm-hmm. end who went to mm-hmm. the Redskins, and Jeff Okuda, the corner who went to the Lions, are going to go in as heavy favorites. By I don't way, think, you, they, seen, you know, there's no doubt about that. Has anybody seen any of the video that Chase Young is putting out on his workouts? What, the kid, what that guy's doing? It's remarkable. It, it looks like it's on fast speed, doesn't it? It is, and it's, like, it's a lot like when Saquon, you know, came into the league and we saw the things that he was doing in the work in the gym. Uh, yes. This guy is 265 pounds doing stuff that I've, I mean, he's, it's, it's unbelievable what he's doing. All right, so another item here, and this uh, refers to the NFL preseason, which is still kind of uncertain as we tape this program. J.J. Watt, the outstanding defensive lineman from the Houston Texans, says uh, he can understand the situation about the preseason. There are both sides to this coin, some positives and some negatives. We get that. So I ask you, Jeff, as somebody who played the game for a long time but also has been out of the game and understands some of the other elements that go into this decision, in your mind, what is the primary benefit of playing in the preseason from a player's perspective? We know, we know what the owners and the league has said, but from the player's perspective. In a normal preseason or now? Now. I don't think there is any. You don't. I, I, I don't because I feel like the first of all they don't count. So what do they really mean? They mean nothing. It's just other than an evaluation process where teams are going to have to find a way to evaluate differently because that's four times. Well, now two because they've agreed to do two. You're two times more susceptible for somebody getting sick because of the way that the interaction with the players are going to be. I mean, it may only be one or zero too. That's still to be determined. My point would be zero. Um, Take away any risk that we can if we have to. The games don't count. Reduce the roster. I understand that you're, you're going to put guys on the street, but the fact of the matter is, is that the less people you're around, the better chances you have of not contracting the disease. So, you know, that would be my thing, and, and really just try to do the best you can. I don't think you need preseason. I mean, some teams need them because they're new, but sometimes you, this would be a case where you're just not going to have it. And you're just going to have to be, you're going to be like the Giants, are going to be behind the eight ball. Um, they, they think what's, what's good about preseason is for veterans, 
uh, you'd like to play in a couple games just to get your, you know, your feet wet for the season coming up. So you kind of gauge your conditioning level, gauge what you're working on. When I used to go into pre, I used to love to play preseason games because I knew that I could work on things where it didn't matter what my statistics were going to be because I'm always judging on my stats, right? People, oh, well, you only averaged 32 yards this week. Well, yeah, I put five balls inside the 10 and, and six and five of them were 22 yard punts there. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. So, but but in the preseason game, I could go and work on things that I that I may not that I want to do in the regular season, but it's not going to cost me because I'm practicing. You know, so there are some good things. And from a new from a new team, you've got to work on how to come out of the tunnel, how you stretch, how you do all that kind of stuff. You can do that in practice. Um, you can work on that. So, and then there's some logistics, as you know, Paul, with a new staff, who's going to be the guy up in the booth? Who's going to, how is everything going to work? Who's going to call the plays? All the sideline responsibilities that go into a game, those things, if you don't have any of them and you're a new staff now, you know, most of the guys have coached, all of them have coached football before and had headsets on and understand how the sideline works, but they still, they've never done it all together. This is a new staff. So. You know, I get I get what's going on, Paul, and I'm kind of a little long-winded here. I understand the dynamics of what has to happen here, but the fact is, is this is all about player safety. This is all about keeping not only the, just the players safe, but the staff and the workers and the people that work around in the stadium. You know, that's four less chances of all those people getting around each other, and, you know, we'll see what happens. But well, it's, I guess my question really, and I want you to, to come at me with a player's mentality, Okay. okay? Um, here's what I'm wondering, because I've never played in the National Football League, okay? I've never had to go through a training camp. I've never, you know, suited up. So what I'm wondering is players are supposed to be such creatures of habit. That's what we've always been told since day one of of the National Football League. They are. So now that this entire situation that we're living in because of the pandemic is going to change the game day experience dramatically, don't you think there is something to be gained for the players themselves to go through a preseason game to figure out what the game day experience is going to be like before they actually start the season? That's a very good point. I see your point. Um, meaning no stand, no people in the stands, just quiet, right? I mean, this is what we're talking about. Well, we're talking about all of the, the elements that go into the pregame preparation, well, listen, I, I, I uh, what it. goes into the stands being empty, what What's, goes into how are you going to deal with things on the sideline, uh, all of the things mm. that are going to encompass the game day experience because we've seen that the NFL and the labor union has agreed to a specific set of detailed protocols that are going to be implemented on game day. And it's going to be an experience that none of these players have had before. What's, what's more important to me, it's the health of the players and the staff and people. It's and not, I, I don't think anybody would disagree with that, Jeff, but, but I don't if think they, you need it. I don't think you need it. You don't I think, I, well, here's the thing. It's even for everyone. It's not like half the team's got one half the team. Didn't everybody's in the same boat. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's equally, I guess, you know, unfair or fair for all the teams. I think the the teams that are new, new coaching staff, has an un, they have an unfair advantage because they just haven't been able to have a dress rehearsal, you know. But I just don't see it happening. I really don't. Okay. I mean, some of the stuff I'm reading with these players is they're adamant about even the opt-out clause. It's something that people are talking about right now. For those that don't know what I'm talking about, there's, there's, they're trying to get 
where the player is has the right to opt out of the season and not getting paid and come back next year. Well, there's a lot of optics that go into that because now guys could be like, well, you know what? I'm a free agent next year. How does this work? Um, you know, just there's a lot of stuff that you have to think about. It's not that easy as just saying, oh, I'm not going to play this year. Okay, that's fine. Oh, there are repercussions to every decision that's mm-hmm. going to be made. Yeah, there really is. And, I, you know, I don't, <laughs> I don't feel sorry for the people that are having to put all this stuff together because it is, it is laborious. I can tell you that. There is so much stuff still left to do um, between now and the 28th of July when the players come in for training camp. Okay, Jeff, uh, let's go to Twitter. And All again, right, let's folks, go. What do we got? You, you can hit us up at hashtag Giants Chat. He is at Jay Fegels. I am at Giants WFAN. Alex Wilson, ESM, says uh, the Giants will see their offensive coordinator call plays for the first time since 2015. Well, that's not entirely true. Mike Sullivan did take over for a short time when Ben McAdoo was here. But uh, Wilson says... The head coaches have been inconsistently calling plays since that time. Will Jason Garrett be a big improvement? Well, the only thing that I really want to say about this, and it's been something that I've echoed for a number of years, I have always been of the belief that I would prefer the head coach did not call the plays. I think there is much too much on a head coach's plate these days in today's NFL mm-hmm. that that he needs to keep his mind clear and he's got to be able to orchestrate the entire body of work mm-hmm. and getting into the details of calling plays to me just muddies up the mental process. No question. And you know what, you want to have a beat on the team, you're going to have to be able to be accessible when the offense is on the on the field and your defense just made a mistake or something and you're the head coach and you're calling plays, you have no communication. You can't go over and talk to them because you got the offense is on the field and you're calling the plays. So I think it's imperative. I think that it can be done by certain coaches and done successfully, but that's why guys like Andy Reid and Mike McCarthy um, both have, at some point in their career, put the decision on, you know what, I'm going to step aside and not call the plays. Um, then they've come back and, and done it because the person they said, here, you can do it, didn't do a good job at it. You know, so, um, but I don't think that's, it's, it's why you don't see everybody. I mean, Kyle Shanahan is a guy that's been around um, football all his life and has, is a very innovative coach. He can do it. But I, I agree with you, Paul. I'd rather see that head coach making like Bill Belichick that can sit back and watch both sides of the football, make decisions, go talk to players, talk to coaches, and really run the game aside from calling plays. Fireside Giants says James James Bradbury will help the Giants execute a new man coverage heavy defensive scheme. Will he succeed in shadowing the NFC's best? Well, Mm -hmm. we we know with the Panthers, uh, he did a lot of that in a very difficult division. Yeah, and and that's going to be up to Patrick Graham. Is he going to want to shadow the best receiver or is he going to do what the old New England Patriots philosophy is? Put your second best corner on the best receiver and double the other guy, right? Mm-hmm. Or vice versa. So I think that, I don't know, this is all about scheme. It's all about it. But I, I, of course I have faith in him. He's your number one guy. I mean, you've got nobody else. Well, that's a good reason to have faith in him, right? But listen, no, but, I don't, I don't have faith he, in any, one, any he, of the other guys. You know what? You know what? Though he's proven with Carolina sure. that he can compete with the top-level guys. Yeah. I'm just not sure that they will do that. Um, 
but we'll see because nobody really knows what Patrick Graham is going to do with this defense. We're, we're, we're under the impression that it's going to be week to week and multiple, multiple schemes about how to pressure the quarterback, how to cover receivers, this, that. So we'll see what happens. But in, in a perfect world, the answer would be yes. I feel like he would be your guy, 100%. Okay. At John Latini says, uh, as this line continues to improve, and he's talking about on the offense, it's obvious the center spot is the big question. Do you think it will be important to get the best free agent center next year to lead our young line? No. Thinking that Nate Solder may not make it and you could use the cap space for a center. Nope. I think they drafted their center uh, in Lemieux. They're just going to give him a year to, to kind of transition into that, and I believe that you'll probably see him there sooner than later during the season. Um, therefore, you won't have to spend any money on a dra- on a free agent center. I mean, maybe a free agent, not, not a starting center, but somebody maybe to back up depending on what Spencer Poli does, but – uh, I think that you have your your center for the future on the roster now with Lemieux. Yeah, it would certainly be wonderful if he can successfully make mm-hmm. the transition from guard. Yeah, and I guess I, I guess the the next answer would be if if he does play this year at that position, the new position of center, and he does not succeed, then the answer to this question would be probably yes. Next year they probably would have to go out and find somebody in free agency or draft a center. All right, we go to Hicks zero twenty one. He says, can you point me in the right direction and take a look at Hernandez's regression, specifically which games he struggled in? I have rewatched about 10 weeks of last year's tape to date, and Will Hernandez had strong performances consistently. Well, I think we we all believe that Hernandez um, had too many mental uh, assignments that Mm -hmm. got busted last year. Uh, I think physically he certainly has all the tools to be the prospect that the Giants believe he can be. And you'd like to believe that in year three, he will truly bust out and and reach his full potential. He's shown enough flashes during the first two years to think that that's still very probable. But I think we would also agree, Jeff. And again, you never know how much uh, um, uh, it plays into when you're playing against the guys next to you. And we know that last year the Giants' center position was a bit difficult. We also know that Nate Solder battled through an awful lot and struggled throughout the year as well. Mm-hmm. You have to believe some of that impacted Hernandez. 100%. And it just like impact with anybody else. Um, that's why you want some consistency and you want some, some guys that can you know sit there and play week in and week out at the same positions because you learn the tendencies of the guys around you. You understand without talking to them by their mannerisms what they're going to do on this play. You just The more you practice with them at your side, the more better you are going to be in the long run. And when you have moving parts, you don't really get to know these guys that much, right? Or a guy that doesn't practice all week and then comes in and plays. You know, you just that practice time is, is, is very important. Now, Hernandez is a guy that, that I feel this is going to be his big year. I feel now after two years in the league, he's kind of figured out a little bit about the speed of the game, and he's got a new system to to learn from. But Mark Colombo, his new offensive line coach, is really going to help him. I really believe that. 
All right. So, again, it's hashtag Giants chat on Twitter. He is mm-hmm. at Jay Fiegels. I am at Giants WFAN. We also have a number of comments and questions that have come through to the Giants mailbag. And if you'd like to go there, you can go to Giants.com slash podcasts slash BBK questions. And let's see what we have here. It's uh, Hanford uh, who wants to know any of the BBKL team, if you can answer this. Long-time listener of your podcast, we often hear, rightly so, that you really need to wait two to three years before you can truly evaluate the success of a draft. I would love to hear how you would grade draft picks from previous years could be done in a couple of different ways. Number one, Giants draft picks starting in 2018 and previously from all the rounds. Number two, NFL draft picks in 2018 and previous years, first round only. And with the benefit of hindsight, curious what you think of the previous year draft picks now. Well, I'm going to cut this one off at the pass for you, Jeff, (laughs) because it would take three hours for us to do this. (laughs) But I did want to give him the courtesy of addressing his question. Simply put, okay, one of the things that you want to look at with a draft after you wait those three years, because, again, three years is supposed to be the litmus test for what a guy's going to do if he's ever going to reach his potential. We all agree with, with that usual MO. So here's the thing. When you look at a draft, you want to get significant contributions from your first three rounds. That's the way GMs look at it. Okay? Mm -hmm. Now, when you get to the fourth and fifth round, you're hoping that you have a guy who can at least be a part-time rotational player and can give you something. That's what you hope for. When you get down to rounds six and seven, my goodness, if you can find somebody who can give you something really good on special teams, you'd love to find that. And if he gives you anything more than that, it's kind of gravy. Mm-hmm. So that's the way that, that I believe the blueprint is for grading a draft. Now, when you look at what the Giants have done since Dave Gettleman came in, again, this was his uh, third draft with the Giants. I think all of us believe that to this point – He has been very productive. Now, we still don't know the answer to that because, again, this is only the third year of his first draft class. But I think the arrow is pointing up for most of the players that he has taken. Mm. Yeah, I also believe, and let me just back up a little bit with your first analogy of the, you know, how you look at the draft. I I feel like you you should be graded on the first three rounds. Absolutely. Those guys got to be hitters, right? I mean, you got to you got to get production out of those guys. I would like to find, you know, I would like to say that, that if you draft well, you've, you've found one of those Darius Slaytons in your draft. And here, Dave, and here Dave Gettleman has, right? He went out and found a guy like that. Or Dan um, Connolly, for that matter. I was matter. just going to say, you took the words out of my mouth. So that, to me, is how I would grade a draft. Did you, were you able to find good quality guy, good guys in the fourth and fifth round and even sixth round to come in and get some contribution from you? from the starting position, whether it's a rotational player, that's good. So, you know, to me, Dave Gettleman checks those boxes up to this point. It boggles my mind, Jeff, how everybody puts so much into the first-round draft choices. And the fact of the matter is, if you're going to build a contending team, 
you know, rounds two through five are so much more important. And it's not just about the amount of players that you'll get in those rounds, but it's also about the fact that those guys are going to be more fruitful economically for you because mm-hmm. they're going to cost you a lot less against the salary cap. And if they become significant snap contributors, the value is greatly enhanced. I think you and I could do a great job drafting in the first round. I mean, how hard is it, right? Mm-hmm. It's, I don't think it's that difficult. It's, it's about the best player on the board. So do your homework, and whatever pick you are, the best player, you're grabbing that one, right? I'm not worried about that. Where I got to make hay is my picks from the fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh round. Those are the guys that I really need to build the back end of my roster and get some success out of those picks so that I don't waste them, you know? So a lot of people are like, oh, you know, they, a lot of these guys give up their sixth and seventh round draft picks. That's fine. But the player they're giving it up for, you know, they feel is, is better than most likely the, the, what they're going to get out of those sixth and seventh round picks anyways. That's why they trade them. Right? Right, Paul? I mean, that's that's the reason. Understood. Um, so I feel like, you know, your the meat of your draft has got to be that fourth and fifth round where you can get some production out of those guys. And I think the Giants have done that. They have in the last two or three years. We have a question from Philip. He he wants to know uh, about Craig Fitzgerald. He says, I haven't heard much about the hiring of Fitzgerald as our strength and conditioning coach. Mm. Wondering if you guys could say a few words about him and comment on the importance of the position. Well, I've gotten to know Craig Fitzgerald very well. (laughs) Uh, I've actually been able to find him and his wife, Mary, a house. So I've been working with them for, for the last three months, it seems like. Um, Craig Fitzgerald, listen, very important position, especially now with what's going on with COVID. Um, but you know, one thing that, that he's doing, um, is coming in and he's kind of revamping the weight room, um, because all these guys come in with their own philosophies, just like any coach at a position. Um, they, they want their own equipment. They want things to do this way and do that way. So he's been working on that. Um, and, and he's also, you know, his, his position is very, very important because, all the guys have to work out, and he has to cater a workout for every single one of those players. I can't do the same workout as Saquon Barkley, right? So you got to think that that's an important job because he has to work with every individual on the team. So I know he's settling in well, but there's a lot of work to be done because, you know, there's a lot of talk about where the players are going to work out and how they're going to work out and how many of them are going to work out at the same time and with masks. And, you know, you got to set the weight room up. The way the weight room up is now – you couldn't work out in there. You'd have to, you know, because this, everything is just so close together. So they've got to revamp the weight room so that you have social distancing protocol. So it's a big job. Well, really the, big. the other thing I wonder, does he have to worry about how much he has to adjust and pull back on his workouts once the guys get here? Mm-hmm. Because not only will they be in various forms of conditioning and shape, but once they get here, we also know that it's not going to be a typical training camp anyway. It's not, and that's why everybody's talking about this acclimation period. You know, the acclimation period doesn't just have to do with COVID. It has to do everything with conditioning and getting guys ready. Because you're right, Paul. Listen, uh, J.J. Watt, the article that, that NFL.com put out that we were going over, you know, he had mentioned in that article where he's one of the fortunate ones that he has a gym, he has a field that he can go train on. But there's a lot of guys that are in one-bedroom apartments sitting in somewhere where they don't have, you know, the, where, their, where their apartment complex is, the gym is shut down. You can't go in there. 
They don't have any fields to go run on. All the schools are closed. So there's going to be a handful of guys and probably even more that have not been able to find a place to work out like they normally would. Um, and they're going to come into, into training camp and they're going to be, listen, and this isn't a, I, I, I'm not blaming them for anything. They're going to be out of shape. It's just the way it is. So they got to acclimate. They got to get those guys back in it. All right, Jeff, that'll uh, close up the mailbag for today. We will be back with another edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live on Friday to preview the Baltimore Ravens. Today we had a look at the uh, Seattle Seahawks with Dave Softy Mailer from KJR, one of your longtime friends there, Mr. Softy, love him, love him. He's a great guy. He's a legend him. out there. Oh, my God, yeah. And, just, and not only that, just a wonderful guy. Really a fun, like a fun dude to be around. And he loves sports, not just football, but he loves sports. All right, so that'll do it for today's program. Catch up uh, with us on Twitter at hashtag GiantsChat. He is at Jay Fiegels. I am at GiantsWFAN. I'm Paul Tatino. We'll see you next time.